We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by author Bill Rivers, whose debut novel is out now. It's called Last Summer Boys. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Emily, thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. No, it's a lot to talk about. It's, it, it's not every day we get to have a novelist on the program, but I think that's particularly fun. Um, so I, the, the book is set in 1968. There's tons to discuss, but why don't we start yeah. since it's the first time on, it's your first time on the podcast. If you just tell us a little bit about your background um, and, and how you ended up writing this book, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I, uh, uh, I'm the oldest of five. I grew up in Delaware. And uh, so a tiny place, um, family, community, were very close. I ended up coming down to D.C. and working in the Senate uh, for several years before I had an opportunity to work in the Pentagon. I was a speechwriter uh, for Secretary Mattis for several years. Um, and I've come from a family of storytellers and grew up on just some wonderful stories, just uh, really larger than life characters in the family. And some of those found their way into the book. And for years I thought, you know, I should really write these down because every time I shared them, people just love them. <laughs> and, and here we are. <laughs> so what you, what you did with the book basically is, um, take this fictional framework and use it almost as a vehicle to, um, sort of work through these personal stories or these personal experiences. Well, it's more, um, it's less to that, to be honest. The book is is a, is a work of fiction. Um, there are elements of uh, my childhood and also my my grandfather's childhood, uh, growing up in the Great Depression, um, and where he grew up, it was very rural, and he was often out in the woods with his friends, and uh, they just had they had adventures. That's the word for it. They had adventures, and I was fortunate to grow up in the same area. My cousins and I. And, and we had adventures, too. And so I kind of uh, uh, hearken back to some of those stories as I was telling this this story set in 1968, which is just a year that I've always been uh, fascinated with, uh, fascinated by, and I think a year that was really traumatic for, for our country um, and one that really kind of uh, parallels a lot of the, the challenges we, we see ourselves facing today. Absolutely. Um, and that was discussed a lot, both in 2016 and 2020, for obvious reasons. And, and we'll get into that. But Bill, also sure. just tell us about why you wanted, I mean, you, you just sort of got into that a little bit, but uh, going from Capitol Hill to novel writing um, is, is probably, <laughs> some people might see that as, as somewhat of a jarring or surprising transition. Um, tell us what took you here. Sure. Um, and and it is funny, actually. I haven't, I haven't kind of thought about that. Um Look, I, th I think uh, Americans, everyone, um, we learn through stories, and I do believe that we become the stories we tell ourselves. And whether that's government or business or your family, the stories uh, that you hear over and over again and believe about yourself and about your family and your country, uh, they make us who we are. Uh, we learn through stories. We teach through stories. Um, whether that's Harvard Business School case studies or uh, Jesus in the New Testament, right? He, he teaches through parables. And uh, best, the best communicators, all they really do is just tell stories. 
And Lincoln did that, and he gave Americans a story to understand that great crisis and that great challenge. So it's actually um, thinking about it that way. I think it made more sense than 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 you might think at first. And uh, this story, I just wanted to I wanted to tell a hopeful story. There's a lot of brokenness uh, in the world. We live in a really confused and hurting culture. Uh, I mean, it, it, it turn on the news, right? The examples are, are everywhere. But I wanted to show a hopeful story about a family uh, working to keep itself together in a tumultuous time, uh, a family that that uh, loved each other, and not that they didn't have deep disagreements or very serious disagreements uh, within the family. And if you if you read the story, you'll see that's there. It's 1968. There's all these different opinions, and you know, high school boys, and one of them has discovered his political consciousness, and he's an ardent supporter of Senator Robert Kennedy, who was running for president, and his more conservative father is uh, is a Nixon supporter. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, it's a, <laughs> it's a background part of the story, but but it's there. And um, so it's not that these characters are, you know, living in like a fake uh, harmony, but they work through these things um, in the in the broader context of the story's arc. And and I just wanted to show that you can do that. You know, our families have to do that. Um, the characters here laugh, they suffer, but they endure, and they love each other. And we can do that, too. So that's what I mostly wanted to say with the story. Hmm. And if we zoom back out to the 30,000-foot view, yeah. can you tell us a little bit about the plot um, and sure. maybe the, the basics of the story? Yeah. So uh, the basics are, uh, again, set in 68, and uh, there's this family. They're living in rural Pennsylvania, and their, their city boy cousin comes to them. Uh, he's sent to stay with them for the summer. They've never met him, and he is very book smart, and, and they're not. And so there's a little bit of tension at first, but the, the main character is the youngest brother, and his, his goal is to protect his older brother and to keep him from getting drafted and sent to Vietnam. Uh, he loves his brother. He's a very naive little boy. He's innocent. Um, but he, he overhears some men in the barbershop say, if you're famous, you don't have to go to war. And he thinks, well, my book smart cousin, he, he, he's good at writing. We'll just write stories about my older brother and we'll make him famous. And that way the army won't want to draft him. And it's it's innocent, and of course it's it's naive, but that provides the basic challenge uh, because then they then have to have things to write about. They have to go on adventures and and kind of concoct or create uh, uh, scenarios for the oldest brother. Uh, his name is Pete to shine, and 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 he of course is oblivious to this. Everyone else is oblivious. It's their secret plan, um, and it's them trying to. Uh, Run a little, a little uh, 1968-style adolescent boy PR campaign to save the brother. And um, part of the part of the conflict for this uh, this youngest character, his name is Jack, is it he, he believes in the military and believes in, that military service is one of the most special things you can do, and so he feels guilty that he doesn't want his brother to go. Um, and that's kind of the first. The first, uh, not contradiction, but the first challenge. And I think we all, Emily, probably feel that in our own family. We a sense of duty, a uh, sense of responsibility. But, but you love your family, and um, you know you don't want them to go. You can be proud of them uh, for for doing dangerous things, but at the same time, <laughs> you don't want them to go. You worry about them, and that's this 
sweethearted little boy's uh, challenge. Little, he's 13 in the book. Um, and the rest of the story just spins out from there. How hard of it? How hard is it to uh, kind of capture the the voice or even the perspective of a thirteen year old? Yeah, uh, unfortunately, not as hard as I was hoping. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah, every day, you know, we wake up and try to be better than our thirteen year old selves. <laughs> uh, sometimes I doubt personally whether I've developed much beyond that. But um, uh, a part of it was just trying to remember. Um, you know, you know, your own childhood, when you were a kid, how did you think? And I remember speaking personally, I was a pretty literal kid. Uh, I tended to kind of take things at face value. And, um, and I thought that it would be great to have a little boy do that. But his voice is something that, I, that I'm told people particularly enjoy. He's hopeful. Uh, he's he's uh, hardworking. Uh, he loves his family. Yes, he's naive. Uh, he learns over the course of the story, as we all have to do. Um, but he's he's sincere, and I I just wanted an authentic character. There's a lot of great characters who are not reliable narrators. They're witty. They're sarcastic. They're funny. Um, this little boy is funny, but not not in a way that he's aware of it. I just wanted an honest main character who was trying to mean what he said and do what and do what he meant to do not always successfully um, and I also thought it would be important to have him uh, pray in the story just to talk to God in the way that a 13 year old little boy might with kind of an earnest honest prayer in the beginning that he wants to save his family and he uh, he doesn't it doesn't go the way he expects or his prayer isn't answered the way he expects but it is answered and I as I thought back on my own life that felt felt right too. Um, hmm. <laughs> life doesn't go how you want or expect, but uh, sometimes it actually works out uh, better than you thought. So let's talk about 1968. You said yeah. you say you've, you've always been fascinated by the seer, and I think that's true of a lot of people. Um, you know, especially people who didn't live through that year themselves, right. and in a way they right. remember. Uh, it's it's so it's been so ingrained in uh, our history since the late 60s, um, and with the benefit of hindsight, it's really become um, to be treated as a, a critical turning point. Yeah. What do you think explains your personal fascination with that year? Looking back, what is it that has always drawn you to that time? Yeah, uh, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is music, and my uh, my mother uh, loved the music from that era, and uh, so growing up, she would play it for us. You know, coming home from school in the car, or uh, just working around the house. Um, you know, uh, and. Uh, so there's such a rich part of American music. I mean, Bob Dylan, uh, the Rolling Stones, and there's a lot of protest songs. And I, part of it for me was this music's very powerful. These, these lyrics are powerful. What are, what are they protesting about? What are people so fired up about? And um, you know, I've always been fascinated with politics and to read up on that 1968 race. Uh, I mean, it, it was crazy. I mean, you had... You had the brother of a murdered president running for president, uh, carrying that banner, but also looking to harness all of this energy that was out there. You had uh, the man he defeated uh, running for president eight years later, Richard Nixon. Um, there was a primary with Kennedy on the, on the Democratic side, um, so he was by no means uh, you know, guaranteed to win. 
and uh, the primary was it, I think it was the first big divisive primary in mass media uh, you know the age of television Kennedy and Nixon in 1960 is the first presidential election in the age of TV we have that famous debate between a relaxed and suntanned JFK and a nervous and puffy looking Richard Nixon <laughs> and eight years later by 1968 uh, TV cameras are everywhere it's a it's a totally different uh, time so there's a lot of a lot of rich visuals to accompany that so really it started with music and then it would go into the history and read about it and um, and, it, and it's a, it's at the same time as you're fighting America's fighting a war far away that a lot of people at home um, I think a lot of people home actually did support, but uh, over time came to lose that support at first, partially because of this this media coverage. And um, so it just was a fascinating time. There's so much to talk about. I could go on and on, but really to break it down on the music and the history uh, in the Vietnam War. Cancel culture is coming to your bank and holding the wrong political views might soon leave you out in the cold. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest episode of The Bill Walton Show, Todd Zwicky, Paul Watkins, and I discuss what is already happening, how the Biden administration is already pursuing this agenda, and what we can do about it. This progressive culture offensive is relentless. It's coming for you, and you won't hear about this anywhere else. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, let's talk about the music more then. There, uh, that kind of became a, a high-profile profile conversation, and it has been in different ways over the years, um, from Dylan to, I'm thinking right now, particularly of Neil Young, um, in the, the Spotify Joe Rogan controversy. Um, I think it was Neil Young and Joni Mitchell who took their music off of Spotify because it was hosting Joe Rogan's podcast. Um when you look back at the music of 1968 and the politics and, and the political and cultural messages of, of 1968, um, the trajectory of those artists now, whether it's uh, what some people on the left might uh, criticize as the reactionary politics of Bob Dylan <laughs> or the, uh, the, I mean, I would actually call Neil Young's politics in the Spotify case reactionary. Um, what what does that trajectory or that arc tell you about the time as you look back on yeah. it? Uh, so that's interesting. Um, I think if you and, and it's it's hard because you have to take them in their 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 time. But I think that if you go back to that time and listen to listen to that music, um, and I'm thinking just of a this song that I only recently discovered, "The Eve of Destruction," um, and uh, I actually can't even remember who uh, who sings it, but I, I heard it recently, and it's. It's someone talking about how it, how it felt, how the world feels, just listing all of these things going wrong. But there is – behind all of that, there is a basic desire for uh, – to, to respect the human being, uh, the human dignity of, 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 of people. Um, the, the antagonism that's captured in a lot of that music. I think – again, I wasn't alive, but when I'm trying to put myself in the moment, the – a lot of the antagonism is that look, human beings have a value and a worth and a dignity, and it's not something that uh, that can be effaced or erased. And when it is, we get really bad problems. So fix these problems because people matter. 
and that's the sense that I get from a lot of it. Um, and you know, they're they're calling out injustices. They're they're describing um, you know uh, all of this stuff going on at the time. And part of me wonders, well, music today does music today do that? Um, I don't know if, if if music today does that. Um, in fact, I think lots of times it doesn't. Now, whether or not it should is a wholly different question. But just as artists, um, you know, great artists treat with the, the, the pains of their time and try to try to assuage them and uh, or write them. You know, um, so I think uh, I think that's what I would say is that I think they're trying to do that. Um, mm. And maybe I'm wrong, but I. I, that, that's the sense I get. So. Yeah, the the sort of free speech schism has been fascinating. You can sort of go the way of Joan Baez, who was in uh, what Sproul Plaza in Berkeley in I think 1964 um, at that big free speech uh, demonstration, and then came out and said Berkeley needs to support Ann Coulter's right to speak on campus, um, and then <laughs> right, to go right. from that to, to Neil Young and Joni Mitchell was sort of depressing in a way. As yeah. you were writing this book and and putting yourself in that time period in rural America um, from the yeah. perspective of somebody who would have been born in about the mid fifties, uh, early mid fifties, what parallels struck you as you're writing this, you know, in the early 2020s, what were you, what was most striking to you? Uh, I think, I think most striking to me is that human nature doesn't change. Uh, that uh, to some extent, then we, we kind of bear out the same uh, challenges that, that you'll see in the human heart. So the human heart, you know, cultures around the world matter uh, very significantly. You know, I would be careful of saying there's like a universal uh, – uh, I, I, I want to be careful about the universalisms, but I think human nature is the same. And it's the same a thousand years ago. It will be the same a thousand years from now. And I think young, young people, adolescents will always be a bit more aspirational. Than maybe their older parents, and it's not that their older parents don't care or don't have those dreams. It's that they're tempered, I think, by experience and and life in a way that you know when you're a young teenager you're just not. Um, <laughs> that so that was <laughs> I think the first part. Um, the other part of it is that all of our, our a lot of our present challenges as a country or as a society or as families we have been here before. You know, I mean, people at the time in 1968 were saying that, you know, politics is so divisive. We've never been more divided. Well, uh, first of all, that wasn't true in 1968. Uh, 68 was a very you know, divisive time, but it wasn't worse than 1860. Right? <laughs> um, and, but, but, you know, 1860 was a hundred years before. So no one's alive who has that sense of that. So I guess for me, it was, wow, you can, you can come through tough times, you can come through hard times. And, and you have to, and, and if you're responsible for people in your family, helping them do that is important. Um, so I think those were kind of the, the, the two things is that human nature is the same and which means that a lot of the challenges we've been through before and we can, we can get through them again. It'll be different. It'll look different. It won't just be like a copy and paste job from, well, this worked in the eighties, you know, when we were facing this crisis, let's do this. That doesn't work. And, in foreign policy that doesn't work in domestic politics you have to you have to kind of update your operating software but if you understand that the basic fundamental building blocks are still the same i think that's a cause for hope as much as it is a cause for maybe despair we, we go to despair first but really it's a cause for hope 
If you indulge me just momentarily, my sure. hobby horse <laughs> is uh, sort of mass media, especially in you mean okay. 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, yes, and yeah, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so even and and then American Bandstand, um, and it, a lot of this music was. I mean, pop music was kind of. So at least in America, um, knew the way that it was being circulated, at least from radio and TV. And right. then you have the visual medium, Ed Sullivan and so on. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. so, and that, that penetrated urban and rural areas differently, um, in yeah. ways that have been changed dramatically just by social media since then. Um, but how much do you think even Vietnam playing out on television um, or popular music being watched on television, consumed on radio, consumed on vinyl um, in, in different ways? How much do you think that was created some sense of maybe anxiety in, in rural America or excitement, a combination of anxiety and excitement? Just the world was changing really quickly in the 60s. You know, even just with things like birth control, um, there was just so many things that Mary Eberstadt has written really uh, brilliantly on that point. So many things, so many things we don't think about as technology anymore that really were new, um, that were just upending the landscape culturally at the time. Right. I think it was huge. Um, you know, you know, you mentioned the Ed Sullivan show and you know, his, his iconic line, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles, <laughs> right? Uh, here they are. You've heard them. Now you can see them. They're four, you know, young guys in suits, um, and then they're playing for America. I, I think it's it's probably impossible to overemphasize how important that was. Um, with with uh, with and the rural versus urban divide, I think is really interesting. That's something that the story sits it, the story sits in that space a lot. You have this character from the city, and he's really he's he's not the he's not the main character, but he's the audience's lens into this world and he's he's the the vehicle by which you understand the small town the relationships the family the the local political structure where this is corrupt politician trying to steal the family's land and and then there's a there's a creepy family over here and there's something bad happening there <laughs> you understand it through this this city boy um but the rural side of it is important i mean uh just just by one example, you know, when doing research for the book, uh, something I came across I thought was fascinating. In some of these small towns in the late 60s, the thing to do if you were a high school senior and you had a car, the thing to do on a Saturday afternoon uh, was to get in the car with your friends, drive down Main Street, make a turn, go up 2nd Street, make another turn and come down Main Street. And when my, when my family and my uncles were growing up in their small town, they called it driving idiot circle <laughs> uh, because you weren't going anywhere. But that wasn't part of it. The point was you were with your friends uh, in, in a car or a pickup truck and you were hanging out and one person was driving and it was – you're just driving a small town street. And maybe you saw someone, maybe you stopped and said hello, but that's what they did. Um, how different of an experience is that from – you know, a, a character growing up in a really dense urban setting in 1968, um, or even a dense urban setting today. You know, it's it's just different. Uh, the automobile is a huge part of it, right? Um, but it's so it is different. Um, and you mentioned you mentioned Vietnam. I think, you know, seeing a war on on the nightly news as our generation has, right? We, uh, you know, I, I was. You know, I was born in the late '80s, so I have no real memory of Desert Storm 
but I remember very well uh, the Iraq invasion in 03. I you know, uh, stay home from school to watch it in 03 just because I was fascinated by it. And when you see that on the TV, uh, it is different. The country didn't have that as much in World War II. Um, started to get a little bit more in Korea, but not the way they had it in Vietnam. Um, you know, the end, you know, all war is horrible. And, uh, but when you can see it on your, on your television screen at home, it, it brings it home and it's, it's different. And we, I think our generation has kind of grown up in that, but I think you're right for them at the time. A lot of them, if you were born in 1948 and you were in high school in the, in the mid sixties, you hadn't really seen a lot of that in Vietnam was the first time you were seeing that. Hmm. That's so true. Um, how did the, and maybe the answer to this is it didn't, but, um, but how did the question of community and civil society, um, as you were, I'm sure you did a great amount of historical research just to ensure accuracy. Um, how did that, you know, create the community that your story was based in? Yeah, thanks. It, it was really important for me. Um, you know, because uh, what, what is community? Uh, community is, I think, a group of families that trust each other and look after each other. You know, uh, so you, you have you know a smaller a smaller unit of community is probably a neighborhood, uh, but uh, and and you break down a neighborhood into the families. So, uh, and to me, kind of the most important thing was in, in the story. And if you read the story, the family. The brothers have these these fights, these divisions, you know, these internal things, but they work on them in turn, and they they each have a struggle, they each have a challenge. You know, one of the boys falls in love, and the other one is has this other challenge, right? Um, it, it wouldn't be a story about high school boys if one of them wasn't in love. Um, they they rallied to help each other, and they make their family whole first. Then, as a united group, they engage in the community, um, and that's. Uh, and they don't necessarily set out to do that. Like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna heal our family so we can then go heal our community. It it happens naturally, but uh, and and that was a was a very conscious decision that I made as the author, partially because uh, uh, there's a quote from Voltaire. We all had to read Voltaire in high school, <laughs> growing up in Delaware. Uh, and in Candide, at the end of Candide, Voltaire has uh, the character say this line. He says, "We must tend our own garden." And uh, it, and by it, Voltaire basically means the whole world is, is a mess. You have all the stuff you want to do to help other people. Focus on the area where you can have the biggest impact first. And usually that's in your own home, your own, in your family. Take care of that first. Tend your garden. And I, I love the metaphor of a garden because gardens need daily effort on our part. Um, you have to put in all of this work to till the soil. You plant your seeds. And then it can rain too much and they'll drown or it'll get too hot and they'll, they'll bake. But with your, your loving care, every day you make a little progress, a little progress in your own little patch of earth. You have to pull the weeds, get the garbage out. Um, you have to, you know, add the, whatever fertilizer you need to grow, to grow the plants. I just thought that was a beautiful uh, metaphor. And so the family, the, the boys here tend their own garden first. Then they move on to combat this this evil, conniving government bureaucrat lawyer who is, uh, you know, out to out to steal their land and the land of these other people <laughs> <laughs> under under false pretenses. This evil bureaucrat, um, and so um, 
so anyway, that that's the, the answer. Is start start with the family and then then go into the community. And and who wants to do that, right? None of us want to do that first. Like, oh, we need to go out and do this and and start start this. But um, if 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 your if your home is a mess, you know, start there first because that's where you have the most good. We all have our our circle of concern and it's huge, it's big, and our, our circle of influence sits inside of it and it's a lot smaller. But when you focus inside your circle of influence, you can expand it a bit to fill up more of your circle of concern. And that's not an original thought to me. I, I read that somewhere years ago, but it stuck with me, Emily. It stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but I believe you at least wrote part of this during a residency at the Russell Kirk Center. Is that right? Yes, I did. And I can't say enough nice things about it. Um, so I yeah, it took about five years to write the story, you know, work and, and you know, just life. And, and if anyone is out there you know, as a writer, you know, right? It, it's, writing is hard, especially if you want to if you want to write something beautiful, it just takes time. And I was really, really fortunate. I was a grad student uh, uh, at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And uh, there was a summer fellowship program and you could basically create your own summer and uh the russell kirk center out in acosta michigan does great programming for for college students teaching them about the american founding and and all of these fantastic things and i had been out there through uh, the intercollegiate studies institute isi when i was in college and i thought i wonder if they'll let me come out and you know work for them for the summer but really finish the book and they did and it's a beautiful place in Michigan. Again, very rural and no better place to sit down and do research and just try to write a story. And I, the story would not have happened without them. So I'm eternally grateful uh, to them. And it was it was an incredible summer. And at the end of that summer, the manuscript was done. And of course, it was edited and, and re-edited. You know, I probably spent another two years doing that. Um, but you just have to get it out. And I'm, Emily, you're a writer. I mean, you know what it's like. Um, just getting the words out is a So I definitely consider my incessant skepticism both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in journalism for sure. But as I've watched all of these my pillow ads over the years, I have just been plagued by the question, are these as good as the commercials say they are? I've always wondered this. And when the fine folks over at MyPillow were kind enough to send me some of their products, I was really pleasantly surprised. These things are great. And right now they're having a BOGO extravaganza. So you can get buy one, get one free price on the MyPillow bed sheets as low as $59.98, the Elegance MyPillows as low as $49.98, and that six-piece towel sets. Those are my favorite. Those are included in the BOGO extravaganza. Also, the Roll and Go Anywhere MyPillows for $29.98 and so much more. Those six-piece towel sets are made with cotton grown here in the United States. Other towels feel good but don't absorb, or they absorb but they don't feel good. Every MyPillow towel is made from proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent and soft to the touch. I can confirm that. It's absolutely true. Like I said, these are my favorites. They have no lotion-y feel either. Every set comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. So you got everything you need. They're available in a variety of colors and sizes, and they are machine washable and come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. Those roll and go anywhere MyPillows. You can use them on your couch, your recliner, or in your car. They're versatile enough to take on vacation or really anywhere you go. They're also available in multiple colors and patterns and machine washable and dry 
reliable for all you parents. That's the most important part. They come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee as well. So as you can see, it's a buy one, get one extravaganza over at MyPillow.com slash Federalist. Bed sheets and MyPillows are just the tip of the iceberg. Find the full list of BOGO offers by visiting MyPillow.com slash Federalist or call 800-794-8429. Stock up with buy one, get one free savings today and get Mike's book free with any purchase. MyPillow.com slash Federalist or call 800-794-8429. MyPillow.com slash Federalist. That's so true. Although it's uh, hard to sort of force yourself to do that so many times. Right. Um, yeah, you got you got to kill the critic. Right. 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 I, and I I think I read that detail in the the very warm uh, review in the American the American Conservative about this novel. And I'm wondering how that atmosphere you think may have influenced uh, the book at all. Yeah. I think it would it it, it would be impossible for it not to have. Um, and, you know, if, if you read anything about Russell Kirk, you know that he was uh, a really imaginative person himself, but he was also big into tradition and um, the idea that, you know, the people who came before us, whether it's in 1968 or 1066 or, you know, 33 AD, they matter. Uh, their ideas matter. And we are the inheritors of their ideas. That's what civilization is, right? We hand down these ideas. And ideally, we get rid of the bad ideas as we go forward in time. And we keep the best. doesn't always happen. Uh, but we try for that. And, um, and so the intergenerational transfer of wisdom was something that Russell Kirk was really wrote about that so eloquently. Mm. And, and I couldn't. I knew I probably couldn't do that, um, but I could at least put it in a story and just to try to show show that um, the parents, you know, the father and the mother with their their children, uh, their sons. Um, and and that's that's something that I really wanted to put in there. Also, uh, Russell Kirk had a, a fondness for ghost stories. So there's a little bit <laughs> of, uh, of that in the story, too, a little bit of the supernatural. And uh, who doesn't love a good ghost story, right? That's wonderful. Uh, yes, famously sort of uh, had a, a an interest in that. That's <laughs> that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if William F. Buckley and and company ever fully understood Kirk's affinity for ghost stories. I mean, <laughs> and and maybe maybe that's a, a, an urban versus rural divide right there, right? Maybe that's little, uh, Buckley, the erudite New York City, you know, socialite, and Kirk, the gentleman farmer from the uh, middle of nowhere, Michigan. Um, but there you have it. <laughs> that's so that's so funny. Um, and the I'm really interested in the process question here as a or just in 2022. I mean, I think the process has has been interesting as as long as uh, books have been able to be written. Um, and especially fiction, the process is always interesting to sort of as a, a human living in re- the reality, uh, the realm of reality to to then uh, fabricate a new world. It's it's very I mean, it's just fascinating. But that said, um, with the immense distractions of modern life, uh, hyper modernity, uh, social media that we know has changed our attention spans in myriad ways, depending on how much you use it, of course, but pretty much all 
of us are affected by this. Um, and, and that's led to this question of who will be the great millennial novelist? And then who will be the great Zoomer <laughs> novelist? You know, how can right. people really write novels if they've been raised on TikTok or even if they are just prolific users of TikTok or Twitter um, with 280 characters, whatever it is? Um, what was that process like for you uh, in, you know, the, the early 2020s of, of sitting down and finding the, the time to immerse yourself in this process? Uh, thanks for that. It's, it, it, it was tough, but I, what I say is uh, we all have a time of day when we're at our most creative. You know, uh, For me, it's pretty early in the morning. Uh, I'm totally dead in the afternoon, creatively speaking. There's like after lunch, it's just over. Um, I, I get a little a little bump in the evening after dinner, and then if you stay up super late, I kind of I kind of get back up to cruising at uh, altitude. Um, and so, trying to write at the same time every day, uh, and just put put those words down, and and really you know put the phones down, uh, you know close the door. Uh, Stephen King has a, a wonderful book. Uh, a memoir called On Writing, and he, t- he talks about this, you know, Stephen King, right, you know, most successful living American novelist, I think, um, and he says, people say you need all these things to write well. He said, all you really need is a door that you can shut, and I, I thought that was pretty powerful, um, and I think to your point about hypermodernity and the phones and Twitter and, you know, constant notifications, I think I think the average you know, office worker gets like 400 emails uh, a day or something. You know, I mean that's that's crazy. So just you know, put the notifications on mute and uh, write at the same time every day and just get the words out, like we said earlier. Um, I think your question of you, know, it's, is isn't it like miraculous that we're still reading books at all, <laughs> given, given all of this? I mean, um, we've come so far from the the printing press, uh, but. I think the answer is yes for still reading books. And I say that because I, I, I want to believe that, not just because I want people to buy this book, of course I do, <laughs> but because I want people to still read books. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, human beings have a relationship with words. It's really important. Um, you know, we, we, uh, when we speak, you know, it's, words make things real for us. I don't fully understand it. Um, but it's there. There's a whole part of linguistics, I think, called speech uh, theory that explores the relationship between between words and action. That's why books and ideas are so powerful. I think that's why authoritarian regimes try to ban books, uh, because they know, know that you know those ideas, those words are powerful. They get into people's minds, and they, they start changing their actions as a result of that. So uh, uh, I want to say that Human beings will always have a really important relationship with words. Uh, even, even go back to the Old Testament. You know, uh, how does God create the world? He speaks it into existence. Hmm. Um, so uh, uh, the term for that is debar, I think, in Hebrew, word action. So, so human beings naturally have this relationship with words, and uh, and you know, that we're still reading it all, I think, is another hopeful sign. And I think we will. I think we will. As for who will be the great Zoomer <laughs> novelist, <laughs> that, that is anybody's guess. <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, but I know, I know that that person is somewhere walking around right now, though. I do know that. Uh, I hope so. Although, I mean, have you read um, any, oh my gosh, what's her name? Uh, the Irish novelist, you know who I'm talking about, I'm sure. Um, 
I'm, I'm, like, I'm, I'm Googling right now. Uh, Sally Rooney. Uh, I, I didn't even have to Google it. Sally Rooney. Um, have you read any no. of, of her books at all? I have not. So they're super popular, but they're written in this sort of stilted, um, almost, you know, you can just tell this is somebody, people love these novels. I don't think they're great literature, but you can tell this is somebody who sort of grew up with email um, and uh, grew up with this very different form of writing. So I guess all that is to say, I mean, having just sat down and, and done this, um, do you think, you know, 10, 20 years from now, are you hopeful that uh, there will be great novelists of the future i am hopeful um and it's it's more because uh, i think what we said earlier um human nature doesn't change so i i don't know what the future will bring but whatever it is i know there will be extraordinarily great things and extraordinarily awful things <laughs> and as long as as humans are going to be on planet earth we're going to do Two of, we're going to do those two things. We're going to do great things and horrible things. And the response to that is always going to have to be, there will always be a role for art to respond to that and help people through it. I believe good art, I believe the best art ennobles uh, the human spirit, and the human heart lifts you up. doesn't mean that it always tells you a fuzzy, feel-good story, um, but it always helps you meet the problem of pain and suffering well and and come out the other side stronger or more loving. So I think I am hopeful that, that we'll still be writing stories 20 years from now because we will have to be writing stories 20 years from now to help us work through whatever whatever it is that's coming. Well, we love to end on a note of optimism whenever we sure. can. And that was as good of one as I could uh, have possibly come up with myself. Uh, but I, in fact, it's, it's much better. Uh, so <laughs> that was really, that was really poignant, Bill. Thank you so much for joining Thanks. us on Federalist Radio Hour. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. And what's the release date for the book? Is it, it's out now? It's out now. Yes, it came out uh, June first, and it's available on Amazon, and uh, and will be in store soon. And so, so it's there. <laughs> Make sure to check it out. You know, slow your mind down, um, get out of twenty twenty two for a moment, and broaden your broaden your horizons. Uh, as they say, fiction is, is so good at doing. It's called Last Summer Boys by Bill Rivers. We will be back soon with more Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Mm-hmm.